Welcome to Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. Whether you're listening live on the Community Radio Network or via podcast, here's the show where you learn from experts, be inspired by journeys, and discover more about making your small business a success. I'm Alexi Boyd, broadcaster, advocate, and small business owner. Let's meet today's guest. Welcome to the studios of Triple H 100.1 FM. Whether you're listening to Triple H or you are listening across the Community Radio Network, this is uh, the show where you learn from experts, be inspired by journeys and discover more about making your small business a success. I'm Alexi Boyd, broadcaster, advocate and small business owner. Let's meet today's guest. I enjoy having authors on the show. They're great talent, having researched their publication and really knowing how to articulate the issues explained within, often drawing on their own experiences to bring a book to life, much like a small business owner does with their own baby. One could argue that the emotions associated with shame are common amongst new small businesses, being concerned about what other people think, previous failures which follow us around like the black dog. But do do those feelings of failure ever really leave us? Today's guest brings with him a wealth of media and small business experience, plus a more personal viewpoint on the topic of shame. And he's not ashamed to talk about it. From his own book review, making a compelling case for the rehabilitation of the ugly emotion, the book is rich with arguments and examples from literature and ordinary life. Although demanding, the reading pays off, especially by providing clear and refreshing distinctions between the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment and humiliation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tani Ahmed. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Lexi. It's great for having you on the show. We've been talking about doing this for quite a while and I'm, I'm pleased to see that you've got that new book out and you've been doing the circuit and talking all about it. Now, let's talk about... The concept of shame. Give us a little bit of an overview from a a psychiatrist's point of view, which is, of course, what you are, and uh, and give us why. Give us the thoughts on why small business owners might need to be conscious of this particular emotion. Look, shame's. I mean, how we define as humans, we're the only the highest mammals, if you like, have self-conscious emotions, and you referred to them in terms of guilt, humiliation, shame, embarrassment, and they exist on a spectrum. Interestingly, most cultures, in fact, many cultures, don't actually have a word for guilt. So shame and guilt are actually closely linked. If we try and think of the difference, shame implies an audience. So it's kind of group-facing. So this where shame is a a very interesting way to look at our relationship to groups. Mm. The other aspect of shame that differentiates it from guilt is that in what in psychology is called a global attribution. And what that means is it's often more linked to the self, Whereas guilt is usually tied to a more specific action. Um, so, so that's a sort of a key, it's a subtle but key difference. So shame can be a stronger emotion in that respect because it feels kind of all of you in a way. Mm, it um, seems to me like what you're describing is something that you, you have ownership of instead of it being associated with something that's happened which you can almost disassociate associate so speak, yourself like, A good simple way it might be, okay, say you bake a cake and you muck it up. <laughs> guilt might be, okay, I'm not much of a baker. Shame is I'm a terrible mother or I'm right. a terrible <laughs> Right. So many other things. Yeah, there's a, there's a bigger <laughs> meaning to it. So that's that's one way to, um, to to think about shame. But look, as a psychiatrist, part of the reason that's quite a shame is an interesting topic because it relates. Yeah, one because we assess people in, as individuals. Mm. Uh, you know, one person comes into our room, often we may see them with relatives or other people. Sure, um, but also in the probably the last ten twenty years, and I guess favorably for my job. We have become more medicalised in the way we view the human experience. Uh, arguably, the language we most people speak of their experience is now through the language of psychology. And in some ways, that I'm arguing that maybe 
has become almost gone too far and it's, it can be too narrow, the t- shame implies not only our relationship to groups, it also implies our relationship to a moral language. So shame has a moral dimension, whereas a lot of modern mental health terminology doesn't necessarily uh, imply a moral dimension. And there's positives and negatives of that. And the final aspect of shame that over, that shame overlaps with, which you, again you alluded to, is the notion of the primitive or what might be called negative emotions. And by primitive emotions, we mean some of the more instinctual things like aggression, disgust, anger and shame also overlaps with that. And one of my arguments is we become increasingly, we stigmatise what might be termed the negative or primitive emotions, particularly in our culture where we elevate positivity so much. And, and, and again, there's lots of good things about that, but arguably over the last half century... We've sidelined many negative, well, negative or primitive emotions, such that, as a culture, we actually struggle to regulate some of those negative emotions. Uh, and I see that a lot, especially in younger people, where you know th- some of the really um, kind of more potent aspects of mental health, uh, you know, terrible things like self harm, which is a bit of an epidemic amongst younger adolescents and young people, that I think overlaps a little with people un- unable to tolerate. negativity, if you like. So that's where shame is a very interesting subject to kind of look at a few of those things. And and I guess looking broadly at the culture, we are going through a time where moral systems, if you like, uh, are in upheaval. So a lot of traditional, say the traditional pillars, be it religion, community, nationalism, they're all sort of being either diluted or under threat or up for renegotiation. So even some of the things we see about cancel culture or these sort of things, which aren't, maybe aren't as quite as pronounced in Australia, but they imply a kind of a yearning in a way for a more moral language and also a yearning for groups. So this is where shame encompasses a whole set of things. I mean, how, and I guess, I mean, all of those things potentially will apply to any sort of business owner because ultimately small business or any business is, is uh, obviously it's an economic act, but it's also an act of self-expression. And, uh, you know, it can be a lonely act. And, and even through that, you know, trying to find the balance of us as individuals, how we linked ourselves to a group. And then we're individuals as well, whether we are in a business or not. And all of these things will, will play out in, in the dynamic, dynamic of having to manage people, manage yourself, uh, manage a rapidly changing society and economy. Um, that will play out for the ordinary business owner. And while those sort of things get a lot of attention in big business, um, certainly at the highest corporations, you see the modern workplace becoming a kind of jousting of value systems in a way. That's playing out in the modern workplace. I think less attention is given to that in the small business workplace. But I think many of those trends are also taking place in small business where there's a lot of changing uh, uh, viewpoints or thresholds around a lot of social issues and I think uh, small business isn't immune to that at all. Well that's right there's a lot of um, opportunities out there for small business advisors to support their communities by offering training or offering support. Um, I know Beyond Blue's great, got some great um, uh, aspects that you can download and find out how to have that communication with one another as small business owners because we don't have that we can't rely on that corporate structure to support us. We haven't got that specialist in HR who's looking after the mental health of you know the company as a whole. We've only got ourselves to look after. And it's interesting what you were saying about shame because it really piqued my interest when you mentioned about that 
over positivity. I mean, let's look at how we have to operate as small business owners in social media, constantly pushing that positive aspect, constantly giving each other slaps on the back and little hand claps. And it's just one big rah-rah fest, isn't it? So I guess to take away some aspect of being in defense of shame, should we be embracing that emotion as small business owners and almost being more um, transparent with it, do you think? Yeah, look, I think... I think authenticity now is so valued, whether as individuals or or as businesses. So I think possibly, you know, sharing some of the failures and what you've learned with it, I think people do respond to that. I mean, there is a difference. Obviously, there's a marketing. It's almost like it's interesting that we're going through this coronavirus period because prior to that, you could argue in a service economy, we're essentially a service economy, that the facets of traits like self-presentation, uh, you know, being a bit of a self-promoter, if you like, and having a kind of constant positivity, uh, the extrovert, if you like, all of those things are elevated and they're rewarded to some extent in our culture. And argue coronavirus and the fact that more of us are working from home um, it may well shift a bit of that balance. So, you know, some of the um, uh, traits of, say, introversion of uh, kind of, uh, you know, deeper thought and not constantly having to promote yourself or self, you know, present yourself. Well, you can't promote yourself to yourself. (laughs) You know, you're stuck at home. There's just you and the four walls. And apart from the occasional Zoom call or too many of them, you feel almost claustrophobic. And maybe I I remember um, my husband mentioning that he felt that this was the time for introverts to come to the fore because extroverts haven't got that audience. So in a way using aspects like shame and negative emotions in our, I don't want to say PR, but in the way we present ourselves. Look, I think positivity generally in the marketing context is is possibly oh, more but it acceptable gets so, it gets to some so extent. old and stale but I don't think people respond when it's constantly. Yep. I think that authenticity, and if you're able to tell kind of stories and, and really illuminate. And remember, I, I mean, just going back to... I mean, going back at a d- deeper level, thinking about notion of self-business, a uh, small business these days. So if you think one of the great, uh, I guess, theories of a more technologically based, say, information economy, if you like, is that increasingly almost all of us could become sort of outsourced small businessmen or freelancers, if you like, where we have a unique set of skills and rather than, rather than us working for the man, so to speak, that uh, society would become... Kind of almost all of us would be small businesses or freelancers, kind of um, selling our skills, if you like. So in that respect, ultimately, most a good small business. I think the best small businesses are ultimately a type of self-expression, and they're um, you know they're an expression of the self in the way. And I think that's when people really get a sense of a pure authenticity. So you may be in an in- industry, you know, for example, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist, and there are lots of psychiatrists. But I think when an element of your own brand or your own personality kind of is infused within that business, you know, you could be a real estate agent, but there may be uh, something quite specific uh, about you as a personality that is then channeled through what is an otherwise, you know, a well-known um, widespread business. I think that gives it a, an extra power. And I think that could be done in, you know, all kinds of business. As long as it's genuine. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's where I think that element of the negative emotions that you describe, including shame, are important to sometimes embrace, um, not so much to celebrate, but to put out there and, and open yourself up to not so much criticism, but almost support. I don't like the sycophantic way that some people use those negative 
situations as if to say, you know, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps or I, I came from this long line of sadness and guilt and destruction and shame and now here I am and I, I'm this success story. Sometimes it doesn't always work. True. We do, we do all need an origin story, if you like. <laughs> so much like we need a, myths, myths and a, a critical and, uh, you know, most myths have a grain of truth and, uh, you know, we have myths for ourselves and, and businesses also need that origin mm. story that mm. they keep telling themselves and, and that's often what inspires new people. So I think it is important businesses have those stories that they tell themselves and they often have to, you often have to uh, uh, renew those stories for, for new times and I think lots of businesses will be going through that now. They need to kind of renew a sense of purpose and retell their story. I mean, it's worth thinking how doctors um, enter small business. I mean, for me, I, would have tr- I wouldn't have thought of myself as, as a small businessman when I was becoming a doctor. I didn't necessarily see that that's where ultimately it led. But you got sucked into the world of compliance and red tape very yeah, quickly. Well, but it's more you, for most of your training, you, you're, you're actually a highly specialised uh, train, you, you train for so long in a highly specialised, quite academic, technical discipline. And most of the time you're in a hospital. So arguably, in some ways, that does take out the, some of the aspects that make a small businessman good. You need, say, a bit of a risk mentality. You need... Um, you need to be able to market yourself. You need to be able to market yourself. You also need a consumer mentality. So arguably in hospitals, you're trying to minimise consumer. You want fewer and fewer people. And, and there's a real strong sort of bureaucratic component, which you know, obviously exists in small business too. But it's almost like you spend you know, up, you know, up to 10, 20 years sometimes in a hospital system and much of this is beaten out of you and then suddenly you come out and there's a whole world suddenly you do, you do need to market yourself suddenly you, you have to have a more bit of a more consumer mentality i mean this is classic in mental health the reality is as a psychiatrist a lot of people most people in mental health don't want my product right so a lot of people will come because their relatives are bringing them the work has sent them or the law has sent them for example less so in private practice but certainly in a hospital system most people that come to you they don't want your product yes. <laughs> so, like this reverse mentality for so, marketing yourself so the realities, and often what you're telling them, people don't want to hear. So it's in that respect, it's a it's a funny job. But also as a doctor, there's been huge changes as a doctor, and and this will be apparent in other um, industries as well, where traditionally we were the expert. But in the last sort of few decades, you've had a huge democratization of information. You know, the internet's been a huge part of that. So, for example, probably you know my, my senior colleagues would have had a much more directive kind of hierarchical approach. So. That, which little old ladies still accept these days, where they just come in, you tell them what to do, and they mm. and they kind of go on. Whereas the modern doctor now has to deal with a very different kind of environment, where people see you more as a partner. So they'll come in with a whole sets of information. They'll come reams of internet sort of stuff. They would have already spoken to people. They might have looked up stuff on chat lines, and your job. And also, they would have been referred differently. So historically, almost all refer- referrals to a medical specialist. So your distribution platforms were fairly limited. It was almost entirely the general practitioner, whereas now your distribution platforms are quite different. They'll be much broader. So it'll be the consumer. So suddenly Google matters or ratings. You know, that, that's become that's a, quite a fearful thing for many doctors where suddenly you have these ratings platforms and often the people, you know, you, the, 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 the one disgruntled customer you've had sort of every month, you might get one, one or two, the average, you know, perfectly competent doctor. And they'll be the one that'll go up on a review and write something. And interesting, there have also been cases where colleagues have gone up, and this has come up in a few uh, specialty groups, not least in, amongst neurosurgeons, where colleagues have gone up and starting writing negative reviews 
about their competitors. Oh, well, that's just the world of small business. Well, that's sadly. true, yeah. But that's interesting what you're saying is there's this been this sudden shift, a transition between always, not only you've got the transition which exists from having a J-O-B into running a small business, which can be a little bit disruptive to your life, but also this disruption that's occurring because of the internet superhighway and then all that information that people are being fed through social media, through Dr. Google and all that garbage. And then they come to you and you've got to deal with that. But now you guys have also got to deal with the issue of COVID and some people not getting the help that they need. And so we're, see, we're going to see a spike in um, in cancer situations and people with, you know, well, chronic disease. Well, definitely been, uh, you know, interesting for doctors because, again, much like society, it's been fairly unevenly spread. I mean, as a psychiatrist, I, I possibly have seen probably a slight increase in referrals. You certainly see a, a difference in how people are being affected. Obviously, there's, you know, certain professional groups that can work from home and, and to some extent they're less affected. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of my younger population in particular work in hospitality, the arts, these types of industries they're definitely affected. And you notice a lot of their structures really being upended. And what's happened for the people I've seen there is where some people with some sort of vulnerability, you know, maybe they had a relatively mild, say, a drug problem or an anxiety problem, but they've actually been going along fine in the structure of workplace. They've had direction and purpose. And then, bang, suddenly you take that away and they can fall in a heap. So that's probably one of the most common things I've seen in mental health. Particularly in small business as well, those who are, are you seeing a sort of a spike in small business owners who are seeking more help or are we doing our thing where we go back into our little box and we just keep on working Yeah, I think small business is important, Mark, because it demands so much self-reliance small business, I think. And, and I see that, put it this I'm in, my job's interesting because I'm a partial small business. So part of my day, I, I, part of my week is running a small business private practice. But then I also work in a hospital. So I work a couple of days at, at a Bankstown hospital in the community. In fact, I'm going there straight after this interview. So there you're suddenly in a big team, you're constantly getting support, you're getting kind of observed by others. And there's a constant to and fro. And I do notice there, there's a, uh, th- th- it feels, you feel more thoroughly supported, mm. right? Whereas in my days in private practice, which is probably closer to how a small businessman works, it, it's much more self-reliant. You, it's fairly lonely. You've still got other people working for you, but there's a, there's a greater kind of, what's the word? I mean, I would say a cowboy, but a spirit. But you are much, you, you're really having to run your own show to, Yeah, you're much more extent. autonomous and you have to make those decisions and there's nobody else to bounce those ideas off. So I think arguably the small businessman, small businessman or woman is at risk of being less aware when things are going wrong for them psychologically, not being as, you know, because so many people are reliant on you, you may be a bit like, you know, mums or some who are often groups who are often not very good at seeking out help for themselves because they're constantly used to looking after others. Yes. So that's where sometimes um, a small business, I think small business, you have to be possibly a bit more, uh, what's the word? You almost have to be a, a bit more self-sensitive, just a bit more aware because you, I think the average person will probably think they're going okay, but there'll be other markers. It may come in other places and it may well be that people junior to the you who won't necessarily always feel empowered to to give you that sort of feedback, you know, sometimes do have to play that role. Mm. It's it's a very interesting point, actually, to see that transition between what's going on for small business owners um, who may constantly be the B word, busy, um, and, and having lots to do in their lives. And now if we take some of those elements away, it does give us that opportunity to be a bit more self-reflective. And that's, and that's good. We're going to take a quick break here 
on Small Biz Matters when we return after the break. I want to speak with you about your role as an advocate, as a community advocate, and what uh, writing a book has done to either improve or not improve that in public standing. You're listening to Triple H. We'll be back after this. This episode of Small Biz Matters is proudly sponsored by the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman's Office. Led by Kate Carnell since its establishment only four years ago, Aspifio has provided education, advocacy and support, including free assistance if a small business is involved in a dispute. The office also provides assistance for disputes that fall under the franchising, dairy, horticultural and oil industry codes. Kate Carnell, as an independent advocate for small business owners, has the legislative power to influence our nation's lawmakers, ensuring legislation and regulations are put in place to help small businesses grow and in these times, survive. Small businesses are the engine room of the economy and it's Aspifio's role to do all they can to ensure they have the freedom to innovate, employ and thrive well into the future. So today we are speaking to Dr. Tani Ahmed. We were talking before the break about the concept of shame, concept of negative emotions and how they are associated with running, growing, the inception of a business all the way through to making it a success, something we should probably be conscious of. We were also speaking about the notion of running a small business as a medical practitioner and how you're thrust from being in a hospital system where you have a J-O-B, a very secure J-O-B, and suddenly you have to operate in this world of small business with all of the fun and fancy of having marketing issues and having issues with reviews online and dealing with Google Doctor. That's a lot of things to take on board, isn't it, uh, Isn't it, Tani? What's, what was the experience like for you, for yourself? Um, look, overall, I'd say I, it was a, a lucky period for me. It was when I, um, towards the end of my training as a psychiatrist, and as a specialist, you do quite a long period of training. I worked, uh, I started working my final year or two of training. I was in the private sector. So I worked in one of the private hospitals in Sydney, St. John of God, it was, I think. And that's really where I, it's where I kind of was almost introduced to the, almost the note. It was like we really barely got a sense of the consumer people sort of coming in that they needed this, they wanted this. Um, and there was another job I did at the similar time. While I, was, while I was training on weekends, I would do this job where I would do house calls in the eastern suburbs as a, essentially as a GP and I'd do it on a Sunday afternoon. And it was a very interesting job. So you'd go from housing commissions, you'd visit, uh, occasionally I'd have to visit the jail uh, there, Long Bay, those sort of places. And then you might go to a harbour front mansion and you'd see all these different groups and you're in their house. But that was a, that, those two experiences towards the end of my training, I think were very important just to in, almost introduce me to the notion of the consumer because you don't necessarily get that scent because you're such an authority figure. I think uh, there's a period, and maybe that's changed now, but I think you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was more a case of you're, you're someone with authority and you kind of direct people mm. you know, what to do and, and they take the information. But I think that whole uh, dynamic has changed significantly. So prior to going starting a practice, I think it's very important to me, just get that sense of the consumer. For example, when I used to do house calls, my, uh, the boss that used to run it, she says, look, everyone, anyone over 50, just take their blood pressure. If it has nothing to do with what you're seeing. Makes them feel better. Because they love it, right? And that's a great example. I I would never do that probably in a hospital setting. But it's a good example. Go, okay, there's a consumer component. You just, you know, you've got to run. Literally take out your stethoscope and make sure you look like you're a doctor. There's a perception and just the elements of touch. And, you know, those things are very important as part of the doctor-patient interaction. So then when I started um, a private practice, I think I just felt a lot of this is also about your attitudes to risk. 
And I remember, even as a lot of children of immigrants, the reality is in medicine, I think a lot of high-achieving children of immigrants are more likely to go into medicine, partly because they're probably socialised just to go into lower-risk fields. So, you know, as a small businessman, medicine, the reality is it's a low risk. I mean, we're heavily subsidised by Medicare and the government, so it's certainly a lower risk sort of business. You're not really going to be out of work. Yeah, exactly. So it's a much Mm. easier business to run in that respect. But arguably, as I... You know, probably as, as you get a stronger sense of your interests and stuff. You know, briefly, I left medicine for copies and I was pursuing to be a journalist or a writer. And it was very interesting getting a real different feeling of risk because <laughs> suddenly you're out there. And I, and I was only two years that I did it full time. I did a cadetship at SBS TV. And I remember do feeling like I was kind of thrown out to the wolves a bit. I'm like, holy jeez, like much less secure. You feel like you lose your job. And it was very exciting. It felt dynamic. So it's interesting getting a real sense of your risks profile. And I think that's very interesting as anyone in small business, because arguably we all probably have elements where we could be a sort of pure wage earner. And that's a certain risk profile, certain structure. And there's a lot of positives, uh, positives and negatives. Small business has has a different risk profile and you have a bit more autonomy and there's lots of positives there, but you also carry a lot more risk, a lot of things that go wrong, there's a lot more people depending on you, this kind of stuff. And there's also that element of being an entre- straight-out entrepreneur. So those things can combine. So the element of a pure small businessman and versus a straight-out entrepreneur kind of overlap a little. Oh, they Whereas, certainly do these days. You know, so they, there's a lot of overlap there. So for me, in some ways, the writing came almost as me kind of touching on a higher risk aspect of myself. Because you wanted, you were seeking that, and do you think? A, it was a purer expression of self, uh, but it, it felt like a more, it felt so it feels like a very dynamic place. We constantly have to think is of that, ideas. Is that where you wanted so, to be? Uh, possibly, but I, I think I saw that you could combine the two a little. Mm, so mm. there's a period where I thought, oh, I would like to test this. Um, and, and I certainly love it. And I still love it. And, and But I, what I learned was the reality is, and even I remember when I did uh, my cadetship, you know, and many of your listeners will probably know Mary Costacitis there back then. I remember she took me aside. She's like, what sort of idiot are you? Why would you leave the security of being like a doctor to, <laughs> to pursue such an insecure shake? And to be honest, that's when just as the internet was picking up. So she was right in some respects. But so I guess since then, and she was the one saying, look, you should, you should try and combine the two. Oh, I see. And I think, I guess I've certainly tried to do that where there were periods where in my writing and public life were probably quite disparate. You know, I'd be doing something in public that was completely at odds with me as a psychiatrist. So, for example, I did a Channel 7 game show. Did you? Uh, called National Bingo Night. Did you? Which was a ridiculous game show. <laughs> and it was, it was a lot of fun. But those things, uh, you know, when it's completely at odds with, and I was training as a psychiatrist then, so that, that was completely at odds with you being a psychiatrist. So that can feel yeah, a little inconsistent. If you can imagine something, something you do publicly, and I write, say, for newspapers, books, so you appear on media on, on a certain level. Ultimately, it's impossible for you to separate that from you as a psychiatrist. Uh, so the reality is it's almost an extension of your brand, um, as a psychiatrist. So anything you do publicly, even if it's not directly linked to what you're doing in your business, will end up branding it. So do right? you think people need to be conscious of that when they are thinking of, oh, I think I'll try this out in, in terms of my, my branding and my marketing strategy. I'm going to try and do this. Do people need to be conscious of how that, where that's absolutely. going? Absolutely, because anything you do public, one, anything uh, public is magnified. 
So whether it's positive or negative, whatever, even even small things can blow up in the public. So you're, you're, you really need to risk manage anything you do public. But I think, but having said that, it could also go the other way. So sometimes if you do something quirky or a bit different or say you do something in the community that's not directly linked to what your business activities, that could be a great extension of the brand. Mm. It, it can, you know, when we're talking about kind of your small business as an expression of self, uh, there's no reason you can do things in the community uh, or, or, or in whatever f- um, uh, f- f- form, that is ultimately still an expression of of you, who you are, and how that uh, extrapolates through the business. And it um, helps to bre- create a personal branding as well because you're show- being showing yourself as more genuine and more human. And the reality is modern work. I mean, another reason I went into writing is, I mean, you know, doctor's an amazing job and, and uh, to some extent there's very few jobs where you're going to get such a instant access to the most intimate aspects of people's lives, right? But ultimately, your knowledge base and often the day-to-day work is still fairly technical and to some extent regimented. I mean, its impact can be massive on individuals. But arguably, writing uh, is a broader expression because you're linking in a whole sets of things and it's you kind of expressing some sort of art form. It can be very hard shifting tack uh, that's an important thing here too because quite different ways of thinking, like any sort of technical job, the writing there is still a marker of the type of thinking. So often my biggest challenge is often shifting thought patterns. Yeah, so you're trying to influence the change. From a technical writing. And mm. so often the first time I write, say say I begin a book or say I'm writing a column for, for a newspaper, etc., often my first draft is woeful because it's it's much more technical, dry. It lacks kind of any sort of kind of bit of a pizzazz, lacks a bit of pizzazz or that kind of stuff, you know, that creative component. So you often need to do a few times. And that's really a case. It's like your brain kind of shifting gears. Uh, so that's another challenge when you, when you try and do something um, linked but not uh, directly the same. Do you think a small business owner who's looking at uh, positioning themselves as an expert through writing a book should be challenging the status quo in some way? Or is this just like, okay, this is what I do. I've written a book. I'm going to, you know, put this up on a pedestal and say that I did, but it's not really changing minds or, or doing anything to broaden my expertise. Do you think you should yeah, always be challenging? Know. I can't see why. I mean, you can just do a, like a marketing pamphlet if you wanted to do something <laughs> like that, you know. Yeah. So, you know, a book, you know, a book's a lot of time and, you know, very few people make any money out of books. So it has to be uh, something you really want to do. Mm. Uh, and the reality is I think like, most people do have a book in them. So I think a book then has to have a deeper component. Like it has to have a deeper component about who you are as a person, uh, you know, a bit of your life journey and, and uh, you know, you could talk, you know, things like purpose and how you link that to the job. How do, how do you serve um, uh, and, you know, it's a bit of a life philosophy almost. You know, I think books need to have something deeper than you know, the mundane. You know, so that's the what book. people grab something. It needs to really bring in something personal, a broader worldview, and how that might play out within your business. So your book needs to have its own why, like you do with your small business. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And that's that's going to be much more engaging. And, you know, because the reality is often uh, the best books are ultimately, the greatest books are all self-help books, right? Whether it's... Are they? <laughs> to some extent, but but I'm using self-help in a very broad context, right? Arguably, the Bible is the original self-help book, right? So the the greatest books are ones where people read and give them a whole new outlook on the world and life. So the world's greatest novels, you know, the the most kind of lasting novels, do that. So this is where I'm using self-help in a cheeky way. 
But when people have a real strong reaction to great literature, um, what's really happening is that it's really hit them in a way and suddenly they're looking at the world afresh. Mm, exactly. And it touches on them. So there's no reason the, the ordinary person running an ordinary business actually has that to give has that capacity to give. That's right, and giving something back to their own small business community and, and the ones that they advocate for. I want to talk to you about advocacy, actually, because um, one of your roles in public life is being a councillor with, um, I want to say, the Inner West Council. Is that what the new... City of Canada Bay. City so of I Canada Bay. Been. I'm no longer a councillor. Right, yes, been. you yeah, have yeah, been. Yeah. And that's... Um, is that... Did that form a part of your branding? What was... Why did you do that? Why, why did you put yourself out there in that role of advocacy for supporting your local community? Yeah, I think that was – that probably I wouldn't say was necessarily directly linked to being a psychiatrist. I think that was more just being a local citizen, I think, where I'd sort of, uh, you know, you, you start you start living somewhere. And this may directly overlap more closely with a small business because my small business isn't necessarily where I live. So it's a fair way. So it's, it's harder to be directly involved in that community. But where we live, where we just moved into a new place, our kids were in, in the classroom. And I guess there was someone – I'd always probably be involved in some element – of advocacy, probably all my life. Um, so it was kind of an automatic thing where you get involved in the local school and then suddenly you're, you're on some other group. And this is, you know, you're obviously uh, similar there, Lexi, too. And then suddenly the opportunity of council came. And, and, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't attracted to the political world because there's still a part of me thinks that marries a lot of the different forces. In the same way I'm attracted to writing, I'm probably attracted to politics too because it does feel like a bird's eye view where you're trying to see how everything links together and you try and sort of um, influence or advocate at that level. So while I wouldn't have necessarily thought of myself as a local politician uh, uh, traditionally, it was a natural, it did feel like a natural progression. So that was something I very much enjoyed. Not easy to balance and certainly quite different. I mean, the topics there you know, development, parks, etc. There's not a, not, not a natural overlap with being a, a psychiatrist necessarily. But at the same time, you know, ultimately good mental health is still how you, you're tied. You know, going back to shame, we, we talk about shame and guilt. Uh, we see ourselves as a guilt-based culture. But arguably, if we become too much of a guilt-based culture, it's really a marker that we become isolated individuals. So shame is still important. One of my arguments is shame is important to regulate groups and connect us to groups. So if we feel some sense of shame, it's actually a marker that we, we want to be connected to a broader collective. So, you know, bringing it back to things like small business or local government, it's a sign that, uh, and again, coronavirus may speed up this trend. Arguably, we're more linked to local geographies than ever before. Um, which may be a good thing. Suddenly we're, you know, we're far more likely to talk to our neighbours or go to the local shop and have a chat to them. So it may well give us a stronger sense of ties to place and local community, local community and local geography. Um, uh, and some of that may be... It, it can, may be a bit of a reversion. Uh, in some ways I'm saying shame has always existed. We've tried to argue that it's negative and we're above it. But I'm saying it's around... Uh, and often it can be harnessed for the positive. That's a great way of wrapping up today's program. Thank you so much for coming on Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. Tani, where can people find out about your book and how to read it and get hold of it? Uh, a pleasure to uh, um, come on. Thanks, uh, Lex. So, so, look, it's uh, the easiest way is probably the web. So you just type in In Defence of Shame. The publisher is Connor Court, which is a Queensland academic publisher. But it's certainly in some bookshops, but I wouldn't say all. So it is in, say, Glee Books, Abbey's. It'll be in some Dimmicks. 
Um, unfortunately, coronavirus affected my book too because the, print, the printers were in Victoria. <laughs> so th- some of that got delayed, unfortunately. But look, these days, I think the online and Kindle, certainly on Kindle, so Amazon, Kindle, that kind of stuff. So it's very easy to find, but it won't necessarily be in every bookshop. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing with us your journey and your small business experience as well, because I think there's a lot to be learned with, with that experience and uh, for coming on the program. And it's been great having you pleasure. Thank you very much. If you've missed any of today's program, you can catch up via smallbizmatters.com.au or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you ingest your small business education. There's over 170 podcasts to listen to just like this one. Thanks for joining me. Now, let me tell you about who's coming on next week. Uh, Next week on the program, we've got one of our regulars, uh, Mr. Wayne Wanders, who is a virtual CFO. Now, he's going to be unpacking the concept of um, small business legislation, which is affecting... Well, you need to be aware of it, actually, because it's going to affect quite a lot of small businesses coming up. And it's all about the concept of safe harbour laws and avoiding insolvency and how to protect your personal assets. An important one not to miss next week on Triple H 100.1 FM. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone, and I'll see you all next week. This week's episode was proudly broadcast from Triple H Studios in Sydney, Australia and sponsored by the Office of the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman. If you've enjoyed listening, go ahead and give us some thank you stars on your podcasting platform. It would be much appreciated. Then head to the Small Biz Matters website where you can listen to over 170 episodes, read more about our speakers and find out how to become a media partner. See you all next time. 